I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15. A very fascinating passage of Scripture with great doctrinal truths as well as many practical truths that we can apply to our lives. Before we look at the text closely, I want to develop the context for you a bit and stimulate your thinking. First of all, may I remind you that Satan specializes in deception. He is the father of lies. He is the one who disguises himself as an angel of light. He is the purveyor of ingenious counterfeits that are designed to thwart the purposes of God. And he does this especially through false doctrine, through false teaching, what the Bible calls doctrines of demons. His favorite disguise is that of a religious leader. We see this throughout history. Whether it be those that don the robes of a Pharisee or those that speak through the mouth of a pope or fill the pulpit as a counterfeit pastor or whether it's a person that declares themselves as some kind of a spiritual guru and goes on Oprah Winfrey, whoever it might be, those are the ones that he uses to thwart God's purposes. And his goal is ultimately to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ and prevent man from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. He is inconceivably brilliant in his schemes to contaminate the purity of truth with the toxins of error. And he specializes in disrupting the fellowships of God's people with factious people. Like a deadly malignancy, false teaching will invade the body of a church And it will produce a metastasizing corruption that will distort God's message. It will divide its members and ultimately destroy the church's effectiveness. And this is precisely the types of dynamics that are going on in our text this morning in Acts 15. Because here we are going to see a deadly heresy. And I might add that this is perhaps the most deadly of all heresies that has ever assaulted the church. And it is one that centers around the most fundamental and crucial of all questions, and that is, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be reconciled to God? And indeed, the destiny of man's soul depends upon how this question is answered. Now, there are many competing Answers to this question, and they all ultimately will fall in one of two categories. Salvation either depends upon man or depends upon God. Salvation either depends upon human merit or God's grace. It either depends upon man earning God's goodness or it depends upon a gracious God who will act solely according his according to his good pleasure to save those whom he will save. It's either based on, if I can put it this way, performance or pleading. It's based on religious rituals and works or casting oneself on divine mercy 
It's either dependent upon human achievement or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we see written in Latin up around this sanctuary. Now, despite the enormous differences in all the religions of the world, once again, they all fall within one of these two categories. It's either salvation by works or salvation by grace. Now, one is true and one is false. And all religions except Christianity says that it's dependent upon man's works. And therefore, all religions except true biblical Christianity are false. The Jews believed that in order to be saved, one had to keep the law. And yet it was impossible for them to do that. And God knew that. That's why God gave them the law, to drive them to his grace. The Roman Catholics today believe, as they have always believed, that it's grace plus works, that it's faith plus works, the keeping of the sacraments and so on. And there are all kinds of Variations of this that we see even in certain quasi-evangelical groups and apostate evangelical groups. I think of the, the Church of Christ. They believe that, that salvation depends upon faith plus baptism. Or the Seventh-day Adventists believe that you have to arbitrarily transport some of the aspects of the Old Testament law into grace in order to please God and so on. Then you've got the Mormons, you've got uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and various other cults and all have a plethora of works that they believe we must perform in order to be saved. And then you have the numerous pagan religions. We think especially of Islam, since it is probably the most dominant, certainly the most wicked of all. And they have a myriad of obligations that a person must do in order to find favor with their fabricated God they call Allah. Well, Christianity is radically different. And you must understand this in order to understand Acts 15. In fact, to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Jesus, for example, answered this in John 3 and verse 3 when he was talking to the religious leader, Nicodemus, who was asking, in essence, that very question. And Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He went on to say that we must be born of water and the spirit. Water, they're not referring to baptism, but rather a figurative Old Testament, Old Testament expression referring to our need for a spiritual cleansing. So he's saying... <laughs> In order for you to be saved, you must be cleansed and you've got to be transformed by the spirit of God. In verse 18 of John 3, he said, you must believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. What a powerful analogy this is. Think of the analogy of birth. I ask you, what did you contribute to your conception and to your delivery? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. We were incapable of doing anything. It was all dependent upon God. And likewise, our spiritual birth is wholly dependent upon a saving, a cleansing and a transforming God. One that is full of mercy and grace. And as we read earlier today in Ephesians 2, 8, the Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. But dear friends, not everyone in the early church believed that, nor do many people believe that today in the world in which we lived. And many people that did not believe that came up out of the ranks even of the church. Many were on the outside, many were on the inside. And Jesus warned of this in Matthew 7:15. He said, "Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." In other words, beware of those that dress up like a shepherd or like a pastor, but they're not. They're a wolf. Paul warned the elders at Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 20, 29 and 30. And Peter warned in 2 Peter 2, 1, there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And Jude likewise warned that we must contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They've slithered into the church unnoticed. He went on to describe them as ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to travel back with me to the first century and understand the context of the text that we're going to be in today in Acts 15. You see, many Gentile believers knew according to what they had been told, that they were saved by grace through faith alone. And they had been saved out of all manner of vile, wretched, pagan idolatries. Now, for them to now become part of the church was really hard for many of the Jewish believers to stomach. And it was absolutely impossible for non-Jewish believers to stomach. To think that somehow God would have anything to do with those vile, wretched pagans. You see, remember, the Jews had a long-standing hatred for Gentiles. They considered them to be unclean, to be defiled, to be, as well, political oppressors, now living under Roman bondage. And all of this produced a very virulent strain of, of hatred and prejudice and pride. A deadly combination, something that will absolutely destroy a church and has no place in a church. But there was a big problem. Jews, especially Jews that had become Christians, recognized that indeed many Gentiles were being saved. So what are we going to do with this? I mean, remember, there was the Ethiopian eunuch, there was... Cornelius, there was his household, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Gentiles and and, and Samaria and other places. And so this was very difficult for many of the Jewish converts to stomach. In fact, many of them refused to have anything to do with the Gentiles. 
Can you imagine if we were meeting here and let's say that we were all Jewish converts and all of a sudden some Gentile converts came in here to worship the Lord with us. Oh, get them out of here. We don't want them in here. Can you imagine such a thing? And that was the type of dynamic that was going on in the early church. And again, you must understand that the Gentiles were a huge threat to the Jews in terms of their culture, their ethnicity, their their traditions. And to have the Gentiles now bring in all of their culture and all of their background was a very, very threatening thing for them. Remember, the Jews were a peculiar people that God had deliberately separated from the rest of the world. For the purpose of demonstrating to them as well as the rest of the world that they were to be a holy people set apart. So they were a conundrum of culture. And so this was all threatened now with Gentiles becoming a part of the body of Christ. So many Jewish believers insisted that the Gentile believers must be circumcised and keep the law. Not so much in order to be saved, because they knew that they were being saved without that, but certainly in order for them to be sanctified. And so they had to impose upon them, they believed, all of the Jewish ritualism and legalism and so forth. Now, you also have the unsaved Jews who hated Christ, who hated Christianity, and they insisted that In order for anyone to be reconciled to a holy God, you had to be basically a Jewish proselyte. You had to be circumcised and you had to keep the law and so forth. Forget this grace stuff. They didn't even believe any of that existed. Now, as you can tell, Satan has a wonderful opportunity here to absolutely rip the early church apart. To drive a wedge into the nascent fledgling church. And I might also add as a footnote here, whenever there are foreign ethnic um, groups or cultures um, or even different preferences, any kind of difference that is brought into a church, there is always there the potential for church conflict. Satan loves to use these types of things as a wedge to destroy the unity and the effectiveness of a church. Now, obviously, if you were a Gentile in those days and all of a sudden you were hearing, you know what, you're not even saved because you're not circumcised and 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 you're you're not keeping the law. You know, you you would be pretty upset with that or to hear from other Jewish believers to say, well, you know what, you, you may be saved, but but you're certainly living a very ungodly life because you're not circumcised and you're not keeping the law along with all of the dietary codes and the Sabbath restrictions and the ceremonies and the rituals of the old covenant. By the way, this is a similar attitude that we have with many Seventh-day Adventists, that you're not quite what you need to be because you violate the Sabbath and the dietary restrictions and you know, all of these types of things. I've heard this before as I've interacted with them. And it's not just... Just that group. There are many groups. I've had people that have called me or driven up here and talked with me or whatever. And the, for one of the first questions some of them will ask is, what, what uh, version of the Bible do you use? And if I don't say King James only, they're out of here. Or people will say, well, I don't want to be a part of your church because you don't believe that uh, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Or you don't believe in head coverings. Or I wouldn't go to your church because you allow women to wear pants. And you allow men to wear jeans. I've heard it all. And it's fascinating to me 
how our flesh combined with, frankly, doctrines of demons can come in and just rip apart the body of Christ. It is always the nature of spiritual pride to wear some badge of 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 spiritual superiority to exalt ourselves and demean others. So this is the context of Acts 15. We've got a serious problem here that's got to be resolved. Now, keep in mind, there's going to be three groups. There's going to be the Judaizers that were predominantly the the unbelievers. And then again, they believed that you had to be circumcised. You had to keep the law, basically become a Jewish proselyte in order to be made right with God. And then we're going to see a second group. They're going to be Jewish believers, which, by the way, as we're going to see, included some Pharisees that became believers. Isn't that wonderful? But they believe that that it was not necessarily um, something that you needed to do to be saved, that is to keep the law and be circumcised. But in order for sanctification, you needed to do that. So Gentiles must, again, become Jewish proselytes before they could be considered worthy of fellowshipping with Jewish believers. And in the third group, we're going to see are going to be the, be the apostles and some of the elders of the church that are going to say, no, 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 no. Salvation and sanctification is solely of grace. And we're committed to putting an end to this bigotry and fighting. So let's examine this fascinating text and see how the choice servants of God dealt with this deadly heresy and brought unity to the church. And as we're going to see, they're going to convene a council or, in other words, an ecclesiastical assembly. They're going to come together to deliberate on these matters and bring resolution to it. And I've divided our text this morning into four categories that I hope will be helpful to you. First of all, we're going to look at, number one, the heretical rift. And secondly, we're going to look at the apostolic refutation. Thirdly, the unified resolution. And fourthly, the ultimate rejoicing. And my prayer is that each of us will be struck once again at the wonder of God's grace that he saved us through no merit of our own. First of all, look at the heretical rift as we see it beginning here in verse 1 of Acts 15. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, beloved, herein is the great toxin of error stated very clearly. And we've got to be careful here to also read a bit between the lines and see what else is being said. Because ultimately what is being said here by implication is that Christ's work on the cross was insufficient. We're seeing here as well that man has some goodness in himself, inherent in himself to be saved. That man also has some ability to save himself. Moreover, we can see here that by saying this, they're in essence agreeing that God is ultimately dependent upon man for salvation. And that man can somehow glory in some of his salvation, at least share in some of that. And notice what happens here in verse 2. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So here these great warriors of sovereign grace stand their ground and they are determined now to assist 
the beleaguered Gentiles who are now under attack, wondering if indeed they're even saved or wondering what they need to do now in order to become part of the elite group of Christians who keep the law and so forth. And ultimately, they know that they must appeal to the apostles and the elders at the church of Jerusalem. So a delegation from the new Gentile churches that are in and around Antioch set out for Jerusalem to resolve the rift. Verse three, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. This, beloved, is kind of like a, um, a political campaign. They're, they're moving through this region now where, as you will recall, Stephen and Philip and Peter and John had previously been preaching the gospel of grace and grace alone. And these were regions that were made up predominantly with the Hellenistic Jews as well as Samaritans. And all of these folks would have had would have been much less threatened by Gentile converts. In fact, many of these Gentile converts were no doubt part of their families and friends. And they would not have been as strict about the Old Testament covenantal code as would the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea. And so this Antioch contingency now travels with Paul and, and Barnabas and they're gaining support. They're talking about the truth of grace alone as they make their way to Jerusalem. In verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. My, what a grand and glorious reunion this must have been. Paul and Barnabas come together now for the first time at the church of Jerusalem and share with them all that God had done in their first missionary journey. Ah, but keep in mind, wherever there is spiritual rejoicing, know full well that the enemy lurks nearby in the shadows. His eyes are ever peeled to see what he can do to disrupt the joy. He snarls with rage and he schemes in revenge and he begins to move upon those who will do his bidding. Verse 5, but certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. Now there again, we see some of the Pharisees had come to a saving knowledge of Christ and we rejoice in this. But certain ones of these now stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Oh boy, here we go. The battle is on. In other words, salvation may be of grace alone, but not sanctification. You've got to keep the law. So you've got to continue in the traditions and the rituals and the legalism and the ceremonies and the dietary restrictions and on and on it goes. And beloved, may I remind you that Satan does not care what you believe as long as it's a lie. And there, there is a smorgasbord out there. Of lies, one that will suit every taste. And this is just one of many. How tragic to see that these dear new believers, these Pharisees and many others like them, could not understand that the Mosaic law that they could not keep had now been abrogated by the new covenant of grace. They couldn't understand that. They could not understand that all of the sacrifices under the Levitical system that could never save, that merely pointed to the sacrifice of Christ, was really over. And that only Christ 
could save once and for all. They could not see that all of the rituals and ceremonies and Sabbaths and and symbols of the Old Covenant were mere shadows and types of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly in his sinless life and thus satisfied the justice of God through his sacrificial death on the cross. They could not see it. In fact, in Colossians 2.16, Paul described these as things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And indeed, at the final Passover in the upper room with his disciples, you've heard me say before that Jesus terminated the old, he inaugurated the new, he sealed it with his very blood. And speaking of Christ and the new covenant of grace, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 8.13, when he said, referring to Jesus, a new covenant He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And we know that soon the temple, all of the Levitical worship, all of it disappeared as the Romans came in and utterly destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. But again, many of the Jews refused to believe this, causing the heretical rift. So secondly, we notice the apostolic refutation beginning in verse 6. Now, before we look at this, let me tell you what's going on here. We're going to have three discourses defending the doctrine of grace alone presented by three apostles and one elder. You're going to have Peter, Paul, and James, and then Barnabas as the co-debater with Paul as an elder working with them. And in these three defining discourses, we're going to see the Spirit of God defending the doctrine of grace with four irrefutable pieces of evidence. The first discourse and the first piece of evidence is by Peter. And that first piece of evidence is simply this. The doctrine of grace alone is proven by past conversions. Notice in verse 6. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In other words, he's pointing back and he's saying, guys, wait a second here. Let's look over the past few years. It is obvious that God has saved many Gentiles without imposing on them any obligation of the law. It's obvious that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in the same way as he was manifested to us, even at Pentecost. And it's obvious that he has now cleansed their sin by his grace alone, through faith alone, even as we. So in essence, he's saying, on what basis, therefore, is their salvation deficient? On what basis can we say that God also requires them to be obedient to the law? Bottom line, he's saying the doctrine of grace is proven by past conversions. But secondly, he's saying that the doctrine of grace is proven by the impotence of the law to save in the past and its unbearable burden. Notice what he says here in verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? 
In other words, how dare you challenge God to save according to your own prescription? Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, he's saying, how unfair is it for you to require the Gentiles to be yoked to the unbearable burden of the law that never saved a single Jew? That very same law that caused so many of us to run to the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, come to me, you, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. In other words, he's saying, wait a minute, the law was impotent to save and it was an unbearable burden. Now, why would you impose this upon the Gentiles? And then Peter concludes with this powerful confession of faith in verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. In other words, no circumcision, no rituals, no Sabbath keeping, no dietary restrictions, no legalism, no works of any kind, but only faith in divine grace alone. And, you know, other apostate groups would do well to take notice of this as well. No baptismal regeneration, no ritualism, no sacraments. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you must understand, too, that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for grace literally is rooted in a term that means to stoop or to condescend. And it carries with it the idea of unmerited favor whereby a superior voluntarily condescends to show supreme graciousness to a weaker party simply because he is moved to do so because of the helpless nature of the one in need. That's the Old Testament concept. You see it, for example, in Genesis 6-8, where we read, But Noah found favor, there it is, in the eyes of the Lord. And the New Testament term has the similar root meaning. It means condescending favor. Beloved, Scripture is so clear, and I want to remind you of this because this is so important. Before man was even created, before Adam sinned and caused the whole race of man to sin, God decided without any influence of His own to save those who would one day trust in Him. And ultimately, our salvation has been made possible solely because of God's condescending favor, whereby a loving God stooped down to do what we would have never been able to do, what we were never able even to choose to do, what we never deserved and what we could never earn, what we could never repay. And again, may we all stay lost in the wonder of God's grace. Now, after Peter concluded, Luke reports that Paul and Barnabas step up to the plate and have their say in a second discourse. And their evidence also proved that salvation is of grace alone because of the confirmation of miracles. Notice in verse 12, and all the multitude kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles.
So in other words, it's as if Paul and Barnabas were saying to them, how could you possibly deny salvation to the Gentiles, given the confirmation of miracles from God himself that validated both the message of the gospel of grace as well as his messengers. Now, the Judaizers and the Pharisees could make no similar claim. Where do you have the confirmation of miracles to somehow validate your claim? So, Salvation by grace alone is proven by past conversions. It's proven by the impotence of the law to save and the unbearable burden it was upon the Jews. And then thirdly here, the confirmation of miracles. But now fourth, we're going to see James with his discourse. And he has yet another fascinating way of validating the fact that salvation is by grace alone. And he speaks about the future Gentile conversions in the millennial kingdom. Notice in verse 13, and after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, which was Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And in verse 16, now he's going to quote Amos 9:11. Let me remind you of what was going on there. This is where Amos prophesies about the the millennial blessings of the millennial kingdom that will someday fall upon the final remnant of faithful Jews when Messiah will come and physically reign upon the throne of David in a literal Jerusalem and Israel will finally inherit their promised land and so forth. And now God speaks through his prophet and James reminds them of this. He says, after these things, I will return, God says. And I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and, or in other words, including all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. It's what James is saying here is, you know, in this prophecy, God makes no mention of the need for the Gentiles who are going to be saved in that day to first become Jewish proselytes. We don't see that anywhere here. So in other words, he's saying, look, even as Peter said, this was no requirement in the past. Likewise, it will not be a requirement in the future. Therefore, why make it a requirement now? That's the logic. So we've seen the heretical rift and the apostolic refutation. Now we notice the unified resolution. And this is presented now by James, the head of the Jerusalem church, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, he says, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them. In other words, that we draft an official document that they, now let me stop here, that they do four things. And we're going to see this. Well, let let me stop here and give you the context. Very important here. It's fascinating now what the Spirit of God is doing through His leaders here at the church. You see, it's important for not only the Jews to be sensitive to the Gentiles, but also for the Gentiles to be sensitive to the Jews. Because there's a potential here for both sides to hear more than salvation is by grace alone. You see, the Jews might hear, especially the unbelieving Jews considering the gospel, that 
having anything to do with the Mosaic law is now taboo. Everything you've ever lived for and believed is now to be discarded. Everything that you have considered sacred for the last 1500 years is completely over. Well, what would that produce? Instant resentment. And the apostles feared likewise that the Gentiles might abuse their freedom here and trample on the things their Jewish brethren might consider sacred and thus force their Jewish brethren to violate their conscience. And this is something we never want to do. And this is something for us all to keep in mind, even in other matters. You never want to cause another brother or sister to violate their conscience. <laughs> we want to do everything we can to hear our conscience, to know what God's standard is, because our conscience will hold us to that standard. And when our conscience says, I, I am uncomfortable moving in that direction, we don't need to come along and say, ah, don't pay any attention to that. Go ahead and go for it. By the way, this is the issue of law versus liberty for both Jews and Gentiles that Paul deals with at length in Romans 14. You'll recall there that we should never be a stumbling block to another brother in Christ. He says in verse 19, we are to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. One other quick footnote as I think about it. Beloved, we must all be very careful because we all have a proclivity here or a negative tendency to somehow abuse our freedom in Christ. And this was the concern that James and all of them had for the Gentiles. You know, so often we think, well, you know what? I can get all oh, this close, maybe even this close, maybe even right here on the edge of the abyss of the world because it's biblical. I can do this rather than seeing how far away from that edge we can run. And so we all have to be very careful with this. And this is kind of the dynamic that they were concerned about. So keep in mind now, whether it was the Jews forcing their legalism on the Gentiles or the Gentiles reveling in unrestrained freedom that would wound the conscience of their Jewish brethren, either way would be destructive in the church. Either way would bring disunity. So James is now going to establish three minimum requirements for the Gentiles that will place some safeguards on these issues. In other words, he's already told the Jews, hey, look, not, not, none of this work stuff, no circumcision, no law or any of that. But Gentiles, I want to tell you something now. And notice what he says beginning in verse 20. Gentiles abstain from things contaminated by idols. Well, what does he mean here? Well, the pagan Gentiles of those days would sacrifice animals to idols and then the priests of those places would take that meat, take it to the butcher shop, work out a deal. And then the Gentiles would go buy this meat at a reduced rate. It was great meat. Now, as we would see here and in other passages, especially Romans 14, there, there's really nothing wrong with this, with purchasing, you know, and consuming this meat. I mean, these these idols were merely figments of people's imagination. There's nothing wrong with that. We have our freedom in Christ here. You know, there's there's no place in the Bible that says we can't do this. But you know what? Idolatry, you must understand, was an inconceivably wicked and offensive thing to the Jews. And so the issue now became not so much your freedom, but making sure that you do not offend the conscience of another brother and sister in Christ. 
So he says, abstain from these things contaminated by idols. In other words, I don't want you to offend them. I don't want you to cause them to violate their conscience. Because there's something much greater than your freedom at stake here. And that is the unity as well as the power of the church going forward from this day on. He gives them something else here. He says, and from fornication. This is any kind of sexual sin. And you must understand, again, the context here. The Gentiles would worship and in ways that are mind-boggling to us. They often had sexual orgies as part of their worship services. And many of them that had come to Christ had very low moral standards. And frankly, as I said earlier, our conscience will only hold us to our highest standard. And so their standards, rather than being up here where God's would be, were way down here. And therefore, they would be very insensitive to the way that they would dress, the way that they would treat the opposite sex, the way they would conduct, conduct themselves personally and even in their marriage. Frankly, it's much like, and this is a danger we all will face in our culture, it's much like many Christians that spend the majority of their time watching television, watching movies or so on. Little by little, your standard for morality just keeps going down, 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 down. And finally, it gets to a point where things that are really immoral don't even phase you. I'll have people tell me, boy, you ought to see this movie. It was great. And there are things in it that are so offensive, you, you, you have to turn it off. You know, what's going on here? And so this is kind of the same type of dynamic that was happening here with the Gentiles. And all of this was horribly offensive to the Jews. But likewise, this could also include marriages contracted between close blood relatives that often happened with the Gentiles. Again, something very offensive to the, Jew, to the Jews. So he's saying, I want you to abstain from fornication. And again, the point here is I want you to avoid giving offense to Jewish convictions, as well as God's standards regarding morality. And then thirdly, he says, I want you to abstain from what is strangled and from blood. Strangled is a reference to um, anything that is slaughtered in a way that was not approved by Jewish law. The Gentiles would do things differently than the way God had prescribed for the Jews. And he says also from blood. And this referred to specific dietary restrictions. They were not allowed to eat in the Mosaic law the fat of meat, nor of the blood. The blood was considered sacred for many reasons. So, in other words, don't do these things. Now, the point is simply this. James is saying, let's, let's have this document that puts forth a unified resolution to not only refute the heresy of salvation by works, but also to prevent the dissimilar cultures and traditions of both Jews and Gentiles from disrupting fellowship and unity in the body. So notice the unity that results here and what they did. Then it seemed good, verse 22, to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren. In other words, they couldn't send just Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch alone or the Judaizers and the others would certainly be say to be quick to say, ah, oh, you guys are prejudiced with your report. Uh, we don't buy this. This was your original position and so forth. And so they sent two leading men called Judas and Barsabbas. Um, 
By the way, uh, Silas, also called Silvanus, was one that accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey. And we see that they sent this letter with them. Notice in verse 23, I'll just read you the letter quickly. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words. In other words, they've caused deep concern to you with their words and unsettled your souls. It seemed good to us, having become one of, of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So we've seen the heretical rift, the apostolic refutation and the unified resolution here put in this document. And finally, we have the ultimate rejoicing notice in verse 30. So when they sent, so when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced. Well, I bet that was an understatement. They rejoiced. Wouldn't you rejoice? Absolutely. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord, which is salvation by grace alone. Beloved, may I challenge you this morning. Be amazed at God's grace. You know, we, re- we sang that song a little bit ago, Amazing Grace. You know how you can be truly amazed at God's grace? First of all, become amazed at your sin. And may each of us here today say with Peter that we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for these glorious truths. May they resonate within our hearts. May we live consistently with them and bring great glory to you, for it is solely by your grace that we have been saved. And Lord, I pray if there be one within the sound of my voice today that knows nothing of this grace I pray that by your grace you will bring conviction to their hearts and that they will run to the foot of the cross and cry out for that which you will give them freely. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.